And I shared with you about these two stories that we often have going on inside our world. We have the story of us, the story which is often about our survival, about our, um, our journey, about whether we will be okay, about whether we will make it through every day and those kind of things. And then on the other side, we have God's story. God's story, which is actually about his kingdom, about his story, about the things that he is building throughout all eternity, about all time, and about how he invites us to join in more with him. And actually, as we, we do, as we realign our lives, we realign the things that are important to us, and we join in with God's story for our life, we find our identity, we find our name, we find our place of freedom and purpose, not in our, necessarily in our grandeur or our you know, fame and putting our light up in shining stars, but we find out that we get to partner with the creator of the universe to see his kingdom come and his will done on earth. And we, we saw that little verse right in the middle of that encounter with, between Moses and God, which says um, in verse 10, I, the creator of the universe, will be with you. Uh, Moses. And of course, we hear that same echo in our lives. God's promise is that our, he is with us. He will be with us. Um, and I said last week, man, this, when I got hold of this story about this little phrase, the I am not, I am not God, but I know him. I get to know him and be known by him. That when I was probably about 16 years old, that totally transformed my life. And so this week, I didn't want to just charge on to the next topic in the, the story of Moses. I actually just wanted to take a moment to linger here, to pause, to take a little bit more time to think, what does it really mean, actually, to, to let go of some of that stuff, the baggage, the history, the brokenness, and actually start to move more and more into God's story? And so I want to do that with you this morning. So we're going to look at the second part of the encounter that Moses has with God at the burning bush. So if you've got your Bibles open, or a device, if you don't have a physical Bible in your hand, uh, then we are going to be looking at Exodus chapter 3, uh, verses 16 to Exodus 4, verse 5, and Sam is going to come and read it for us. All right. Um, hello again. Um, so it says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel um, shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and that when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians." Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. 
The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. All right. <laughs> You're like, my goodness, he's got a whiteboard. What is he doing? Um, I'm going to I'm going to draw something in a minute. Um, so, um, one of the central actions in the Christian life, one of the the rites of initiation, one of the things that we ask all people who want to follow Jesus to do is to get baptized. Uh, and baptism, if you've never seen it before, is this beautiful action which happens when we confess our lives, we want to give our lives to Jesus. And we put somebody, usually an adult, in, in some water, and it could be a swimming pool, or it could be you know, a river, or, or a lake, or it could be the sea. And what we do is we, we lower somebody down into the water, under the water, and we bring them back up again. And that motion is a motion which we symbolically say is about dying to our old self, and it's about rising to a new life in Christ. What it actually does is it mirrors the very thing that Jesus did uh, when we celebrated Easter on Good Friday. We recognize that Jesus gave up his life, his authority, his power, his rights, and died on a cross for you and for me, and that he rose again on Easter Sunday to transform death and bring about new life in him. And that motion, the, the dying to old self, the rising to new self, it's actually a motion that's like repeated throughout the Christian story over and over again. It's not only about our eternal story, it's not even about the purposes we have for our life, but in some cases it's literally the very life that we live on a daily, daily basis. And so what I want to do with you this morning is I want to look actually not even just at two motions, down and up, but I want to look at the four parts of that motion which go to bring about that whole story that God wants to bring in our life of new uh, life. So the first motion I want to suggest in the knowing of Christ, I've put this on the wrong side of me because I'm left-handed, but it's just going to have to live with it, is this one. Um, this, I don't know what word uh, you think of. When you're thinking about Jesus, when you're thinking about what it means to follow him, um, one of the community group questions this week was like, how, what is it about Jesus that you really love? And in our community group, we had questions like faith, uh, healing, salvation. I don't know if when you think of that question, any of you would actually use words like obedience or surrender. They're the kind of words, aren't they, which sound a little bit like religion. They're the words that are grandparents might have used, but we in our coffee-fueled, donut-laden churches of new, we don't like these kind of words, right? They are words which sound a bit legalistic. But actually, the first motion that God seems to invite everyone into in life is actually a movement of obedience um, and surrender. Have you ever think about, let's go to Moses. So Moses uh, meets God when he's 80 years old at the burning bush, and God outlines this this process and this story of salvation and healing. But I don't know if you've ever wondered, why did God not choose a 20-year-old Moses? The 20-year-old Moses, politically influential, maybe strong, young, uh, in the palace with political influence, with all sorts of power at his disposal. 
If God wanted to enact a rescue mission of the Israelites who are being held captive in that land, 20-year-old Moses would have been a good start. God did not choose a 20-year-old Moses. God chose a Moses who had actually lost pretty much all of those attributes. He chose a motive, uh, chose a Moses who had lost his own strength, who was not young, was not influential, didn't even have the relationships anymore. He chose a Moses who really was empty-handed. Why did God choose a Moses who was empty-handed? Well, it seems that God always chooses people who are empty-handed. Because God's first invitation is always the same, is actually, would you surrender? Would you give up those things that you have? You see, we know in Moses that he holds some things pretty tightly. When he gets to 80 years old, he meets God at the burning bush. And God has to take two chapters out of the Bible to persuade Moses that actually he needs to let go of some of his stuff and join in on his time. The implication is pretty strong. Like Moses, what I need from you is I need you to let down your guard. I need you to let down your pride. I need you to let go of some of your ego and your story and your strength because that is the start of the journey that I want in your life. Now let's be honest, none of us want to hear that, but that seems to be the way that God does his business. God's first invitation to you and me is often, would you? Would you allow me? And would you allow me to take away some of those things in first so I can work with us? I mean, I don't know about you. I don't know if God has ever said to you, man, I said to you, like, Ben, I really would love you to do this, and you have done something like this. I can't. Moses says to God, I can't do that. This is who I am. This is who I'm not. These is what I'm capable of. This is what I'm not capable of. These are the things I can do, and these are the things I can't do, and so this is the box that I'm going to put you in. And so therefore, God, the very thing that you want to do is not possible. And yet God wants to say to Moses, it's not about you, dude. I am going to do something amazing. I don't know if you've ever said to God, I just won't do that. I love you, but I just won't do that. I can't do that. Because what I want is something different to what you don't, you want. Now, I genuinely hope for all of us that it won't take 80 years of crisis, 80 years of tragedy in our life. But the first invitation that the Lord always gives to his people is this, is would you surrender the things that you have? Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Jesus puts it like this in Matthew chapter 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Now, I don't think either Jesus or Paul are saying what we really need to do is lose our personalities. We need to lose everything we have, become cult-like robotic figures who then God can like mind control into doing what he wants. No, in fact, God created you as you are with beautiful things. But there are things in all of our stories that are not of the Lord. There are things which actually God may need you and I to let go of in order that he can then hand us something else. God's invitation to his people always seems to be, would you let go of the pride, the ego, the materialism, the anger, the brokenness, so that I can do something new? Louis Giglio Um, who I mentioned last week, he puts it like this. When I live like I'm privileged, I have lost God's plot for my life. 
In other words, when I start acting like I deserve a certain outcome or a higher standard of life, I have failed to strike the fatal blow to self and I'm living like I actually have rights in this world apart from God. When I act like I'm pompous, I have lost God's plot, thinking that I am somebody while only proving that I haven't got a good look at God today. When I crumble under pressure, I've lost the plot declaring that the outcome of life sits squarely on my shoulders, not his. When I start protecting, I've lost the plot. Marking turf, though, I was actually mine, forgetting that everything I have comes first from above. When I crave the spotlight for myself, I have lost the plot, losing sight of the storyline and the one true star. When I fail to celebrate the success of others who are living for his fame, I've lost his plot, thinking that possibly we are on different teams when actually we share supporting roles in the same unfolding story. When I dwell on feelings of being unloved, unnoticed, or insignificant, I have lost God's plot, abandoning the miracle of knowing God on a first-name basis. They're so challenging, aren't they? So challenging. And I wonder, even as you heard those, I wonder if there was one or two where you thought, oh, gosh, yes, Lord. That is the challenge you give to me, something that I am working through. Maybe even as you heard some of those this morning, you might have gone... It's fair enough, but I'm not even interested in letting go of those because those are my story. Those are my identity. That's who I am. God's first invitation is actually a movement of surrender. But God's second movement is actually a different movement because the second movement that you and I are always invited into is actually a movement of encounter with him. God turns up at Moses' very lowest point when he lost everything, when he'd left everything behind, and then he encountered this beautiful, transforming moment where the Lord met him and said to him, Moses, I am here with you. He says to Moses, I have seen my people. I am going to do something about it. You see, when God gets involved in our stories, the second beautiful movement is that he invites us into his presence. He invites us into relationship with him. There is this movement of connection where God says, come, come as you are. But you see, it's not just that he says, come into my presence on your own. There is this absolute individual characteristic to faith. But there's something more than that. If you notice, there's always something more than that. Because not only does he say, come as you are, he says, what am I going to do? What I'm going to do is I'm going to reunite you with the rest of the people of God. And together, he says in verse 16, you will go and you will see Pharaoh and you will see my people transformed. You see, I believe this is always how God works. God brings us to himself individually, but he always actually reconciles us in a larger sense with one another. Jesus says it like this. He says that the process of becoming oneness in the kingdom of God is that he prays that there would be one relationship with God, Father and Son, but also that we would be one together in the kingdom people of God. If you look at how God calls human beings throughout history, God always seems to have these two components, calling people to himself and calling people together with one another. Moses, of course, goes on to rescue the people of God and reunite them. David, the very one who is considered to be the man after God's own heart in that vertical relationship, actually is also the one who God says uses to bring about God's people into the promised land and find its place there. Isaiah and the prophets were the ones who had this incredible insight into what God was doing in the world. But the thing that they often brought was challenging, challenges about the sinfulness and the brokenness of God's people. Jesus made disciples and formed communities. And when the Holy Spirit came on the church at Pentecost, they were birthed into these beautiful kingdom people. 
that the movement of God is an encounter movement, not just on our own, but actually an encounter together with what God wants to do. And those two movements, interestingly, the down and the across, are really well, really well uh, described in one of the Ten Commandments. Um, I don't know how many times a week you read the Ten Commandments. Maybe not that many, I don't know. I don't know how many of you you think that you follow. Um, I imagine probably you probably subscribe to the don't murder one, or at least on Sundays. Like, <laughs> do not murder. But there's actually one of the Ten Commandments which I think is really under threat. It's one of the ones that we're losing, um, seems like, in our, in our culture quite a lot, which is this one, Deuteronomy 5.12. Um, observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. As the Lord your God has commanded you, six days you will labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. What's that about? That's Moses, by the way, speaking. Well, actually, it comes from something that God did in the creation story. Right at the beginning of the Bible, if you were to turn to Genesis chapter 2, you would see this. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now I think it's pretty safe to say that it wasn't that God got to the seventh day and went, man, that was a lot of things to build. I need a holiday. Like I need to take some time out. Actually what God was doing on the seventh day of creation was that actually he was stopping and he was modeling something that would become part of the very fabric and the nature of the created world. That once in a cycle, once in a week, that there would be a place for rest, but there would also be a place for holiness, for encounter. If you look at the people of God in the Old Testament, that actually once a week, they literally did stop. They would put down their work. They would put down their ability to provide for themselves. They would put down their agendas. They would put down the empires that they were building. And once a week, they would literally come into the presence of God and stop and do very little other than worship with each other and rest. You know, we live in this time, I think, don't we, in history where the the very nature of what it means to have faith in anything has really changed in a spiritual sense. Um, I I wonder what people will say about us in the widest sense. Church historians, you know, sociologists will say about this pandemic. And it it strikes me that on one hand, we're going to talk about disruption. We're going to talk about things that have disrupted uh, the lives that we lead. We're going to talk about like, the inability of people to gather together in worship. We're going to talk about you know, vaccines and the pandemic and, and all the other things that have kind of like, given us cause for stress and anxiety over the last year. But on the other hand, I think we're going to talk about an acceleration. These kind of moments of crisis in life often bring about acceleration. And I think we, we've actually seen an acceleration of something that has been going on certainly over the last 50 years. And I come from Europe and, I, and I've seen it a, a lot even before the pandemic started, which is this individualization and personalization of spirituality. Um, I was on a ski slope um, in March, learning to ski, and uh, I had a ski instructor and he said to me, hey, you know, like, what do you do? And I, I said, well, I... I'm a, I'm a pastor, and he said, oh, wow, that's fantastic. You know, I've been, I've been going to my Lutheran church for the last kind of like 35 years or something. But actually, in the pandemic, I realized they weren't very good at live streaming, and so I've just kind of given up on it. And occasionally, I'll tune in, and he mentioned his favorite TV evangelist. And the kind of implication which I've heard from him, and, and maybe you've heard this story, I've heard it so many times over the last year, is that actually faith is no longer something we do together. Faith is something that we pick from. 
that we choose from, that we fit into the stories that we're all living so that actually it will, will bring something good into our lives. Now, believe it or not, as a pastor, I'm not actually someone who believes that, you know, if you don't go to church 377 times a year, that you're not actually a real Christian. I, I don't actually believe that. But, but what I do see here in this Sabbath is this beautiful movement where God says, like, once a week, the, ind- the invitation to you and I is actually to recognize that we are not, but that we can know the I am. That even if our lives are stressed out, even if our lives are busy, even if our lives are overcrowded, even if we're overwhelmed with all the demands that we have to face every single day, that that once a week God's invitation to you and me is to stop. To stop providing for ourselves. To stop working. To recognize that we aren't in charge. To recognize that we aren't in control. To actually instead for God to invite us into his presence where we are re-centered and we recognize that he is the one in charge. And I think it's such a beautiful invitation. I mean, let me just you know, speak to, to families for a minute. You know, over the last year, the, the, the data says that probably between 25 and 50% currently of all Christians in the United States have left regular church attendance. And we don't know what's gonna happen, whether they're gonna come back. We don't see it here this morning, praise the Lord. But that's where we, where we are right now. But the single biggest group who have left the church are families, actually. Now, I'm sure that on one hand, there's some very big reasons for that. There's some very significant practical things that have happened to do with children, church's ability to offer kids and youth work. But it just strikes me this as I think about my kids and as I was talking to someone this week, you know, our kids are going to grow up in a world, and I, this is true if you're a grandparent or if you're a father or a mother or you're an uncle or an aunt, you know, our kids are going to grow up in a world, I think, which is going to be more complicated faith-wise where once where Sundays are going to be this complete like smorgasbord of different events where the pressures of work, the pressures of family life, the pressures on us are going to be so intense. And, and yet, if we want our kids, if we want those beautiful people who were out there, who went to their groups, to know that they are not, but they can know the I am, if we want them to recognize that God is Lord of their lives, if we want them to have a personal relationship, then I actually think there's a huge moment in history right now that faces all of us about whether or not we are gonna model something to them about Sabbath, about the spiritual disciplines. It's not even just Sabbath. I mean, it's the same when we tithe. You know, when we come before the Lord and we say like, I'm gonna tithe, what we're actually saying is I am not, but I know I am. When we choose with our choices, when we choose with our words, when we choose with our actions, what we're doing is we're modeling that we are not in charge, but that God, at least once a week, at least in some areas of our life, has this beautiful thing for us. When we take a Sabbath, when we do things like this, we say, God is in charge. I am not, but I know I know, I am. Now, I realize this has been a miserable morning so far. <laughs> I have just talked about all sorts of hard things. But this is the most beautiful point, I think. When we come to this place of surrender and encounter with God, something amazing happens. Something phenomenal happens when we learn how to let go of our story, when we move into this place of openness to God's story, something transformative happens. Galatians 2.20 carries on. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. Where my story so often says, I'm gonna start here, God, and I'm going up and to the right and I expect you to bless me, and I expect you to provide for me, and I expect you to give me what I want, God actually says, you need to get here before you're ready for what I have for your life. 
I could probably give you a hundred stories to this in my life. But I'm always reminded, and I'm sorry if you've heard this one before, um, but when I, was, when I got to, to university, I was like 19 years old, I um, lived in the Far East, I came back to this uh, big science and technology sports university in the United Kingdom. And uh, I, I basically decided, I was like, okay, God, I'm 18 years old. What I need now is a steady Christian girlfriend so I can get married. And I was like, right, it's just, just a good plan. Like, I'm here, Christian girlfriend, it's probably what you want for my life, there's no question. I've got it all sorted out. If you could just sort it out, that would be great. The only problem was that I had enrolled at the biggest science and technology and sport university in the United Kingdom, and there weren't very many girls. In fact, it was probably the churches in the town where I was were probably the only churches in the whole of the known northern hemisphere which had about five times as many guys as girls in them. Right? It just, I, was, I was just like, I couldn't believe it. Now, at first, it was kind of funny, and we joked about it. But actually, after a while, it wasn't funny. And if some of you have been in that situation where you've been like, I really would love to be with someone, actually, it, it doesn't stay funny for very long. It actually gets kind of sad and angry. And after a couple of years of being a student, I was really cross. Like, I was at the point of like, God, I, I don't really care anymore. You don't seem to be listening. You don't seem to understand my story. And so what I'm going to do, if you're not going to sort it out, I will sort it out for myself. And I went and found somebody to be in a relationship with. And it was not good. It was really not good. Actually, it was a relationship that hurt me. It hurt the other person. And it left me eventually at a point where actually I had to say to God, I remember going out one day and just being out in a field somewhere in England, just riding my bike out, in, like literally in tears and saying, actually, God, I give up. Like, I surrender. I am not in charge. And I recognize that I have not got any ability to sort this out. And it might be okay. And I want you to know, God, that you are enough that you are enough in my life, that if I never get married, if I never have kids, if I never I get all the things that you want, what I want for myself, I just want you to know today, even though it hurts me in every part of my body, I just want you to know that's okay because I still love you. And I sort of think back at the wry smile that the Lord must have had on his face that day as I sat there in that field because I feel like it was probably the very moment the Lord went, okay, Ben, now we can talk. Now we can talk. Now we can do some business together. In fact, it was about three months later when I was least expecting it, when I was totally not in any way interested in the least romantic place on earth, otherwise known as my parents' living room. <laughs> I, I walked in that Christmas, and there, sitting on the sofa in my parents' living room, was this astonishingly beautiful young lady who you all know, who had gone through exactly the same process and had been through the same place of brokenness and had got to a point and said, I, this may never happen in my life, and if it never happens, that's okay. And the Lord went, okay, now you can talk. And the rest, as they say, is, is amazing. You see, that's not even just a one-off thing. It's not even about how we become a Christian, but actually it's a daily choice that often we're invited into where God will say to you and me, will you lay it down? Will you let it go? And if it's gone, am I still God in your life? Am I still in charge? Do you still love me? There's this amazing story in the Old Testament of the Bible. Uh, you probably know it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three coolest dudes in the Old Testament, by their names at least, right? And, and one, what, like one day the, the king says to them, like, I want you to all bow down uh, to worship me. And they say, we're not doing it. And they find themselves in a fiery furnace. And, and the king says to them, come on, guys, all you've got to do is bow down in front of me and everything and we're right. And you know what they say to the king? They say, we will not bow down to you. Because we believe God is going to do something amazing in this moment. 
But even if he does not, O king, we will not worship you. We're going to worship him. I think so often what God wants to say to you in mind, even if not, even if that wildest dream that you have in your own heart does not come to bear, do you still love me? Will you allow me to write a better story? Because here's the amazing thing that you need to know. When God gets involved in your story, something amazing starts to happen. Because as you find yourself here, God often wants to say to you and me, okay, I have a calling for you. I have a plan for you. When Moses gets to verse 18 and he actually finally gives up after two chapters of of arguing with the God of the universe in front of him, of course, we know what happens to him. He goes on to become one of the most supernatural characters in the Old Testament. He goes on to become one of the most influential leaders in all of human history, but it doesn't come because he figured it all out. It actually became because he learned what it meant to surrender and to allow the Lord to move in his life. You know, I, w- I wonder, you know, for you and for me this morning, you know, what, what are the non-negotiables that we're not even prepared to think about surrendering? What are the things which we have grabbed onto so tightly because we're like, you know, this is who I am. This is who I'm not. I am not interested in talking to you, God, about these things. This is the non-negotiables. What are those things that the Lord might want to say, but I might have a better plan. I might have a different plan for your life. You know, in my story, I am so glad that God did not give in and listen to my prayers for the very first beautiful girl that I met on campus that first Sunday. I'm so glad that he had a better story because here's the thing that you really need to know is that God's stories are better than your stories. What God wants to do with your life is better than what you want to do with your life. Just look at what he says to Moses. This is, what I'm, this is the rescue plan, Moses. And I'm going to give you the details in a minute. But imagine like if you'd been given the, the rescue plan for all of Israel. I don't know what your strategic goals would have been. Maybe like, oh man, if we get 80% of those guys out of Israel, it will be okay. If we get out by the skin of our teeth just with some wounds, okay, we'll be okay. Out of Egypt, sorry. Look what God says. God says, Moses, I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then he goes on. He says, and I will make, when you leave, the Egyptians favorably disposed to the people so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which she will put on your sons and daughters. See, Moses' story would have probably been like, if we can just get out of here, we'll be okay. What does God say? No, dude. When I am involved in the story, you're going to come out of this place of captivity and you are going to find paradise. And not just that, when you leave, I'm going to give you goodie bags. (laughs) Right? When you leave, all your ladies are going to get to go with some jewelry and other beautiful things. I mean, that's a bit of a strange story if you don't understand the context. But it is the kind of way that the Lord works. Because God is actually a God of abundance. He's a God of beauty. What he can build out of our brokenness is just absolutely life transformational if we're prepared to let go of some of the old stuff. And here's the final part of the story, which, is, which I, I think we, we can't miss, which is that as we find the callings, as we find the places that the Lord has for us, it's not just that he says go, but he actually says, I will go with you and you will experience my power as you go. 
See, God's desire is, is not just that you would be obedient to him in what he wants for you, but also that you would experience the supernatural power that is on offer to you through the Holy Spirit. At the beginning of chapter 4, Moses says, um, which Sam just read for us, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't believe that you appeared to me? And the Lord said to Moses, what's in your hand? And Moses replied, a staff. And so God said, put it down on the ground, and it turns into a snake. And Moses ran from it, which I think is a very sensible thing. Uh, And then the Lord said, reach out your hand and take it by the tail, which is a really bad idea, by the way, normally. Um, Reach out your hand, take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of your fathers, God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. You see, what God promises to Moses is that actually as he goes, he will encounter the incredible power of God at work in his life. I think so often it's actually as we come here and and then step out in this incredibly scary journey that can sometimes feel like God's guidance in our life, that can sometimes feel like just walking in the things of the Lord, that actually God says, okay, well, you're not going to go on your own because I am going to do something profound. It's actually out of the place of powerlessness that God's power works in Moses' life. It's actually out of your weakness, out of your struggles, out of your brokenness, that God is able to do something transformative in the world around you. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, you will heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, so freely give. Now, I realize, you know, if you're, you know, if you're 18 today, you might feel like, you know, gosh, I don't know what calling God's got in my life that's going to be different from what I've already experienced today, or if you're 81, or, you know, with different stages, different experiences, different circumstances. But what Moses' story tells me is this, is that it's never too late. He was 80 years old. It's never too late to encounter what God might have for your story. I don't believe, by the way, that this is a story of infinite wealth. I don't believe this is a story of fame and fortune. I don't believe necessarily that you will be the most popular person in the whole history of the world if you take this journey. But what I do believe, and I have experienced in my life time and again, is if we will take this journey, that the Lord can do things in us that we can't even begin to imagine, that we will look back and say, this was everything that I hoped. You know, um, I think it's amazing what the Lord is doing in this community right now in his power. Um, over the last weeks, we've just seen these amazing stories of, of healing. Um, I got an email this week from a lady who was in her 70s who came to church three weeks ago, and um, we were praying for healing. And there was a particular word about praying for people's backs, I think. And she said, I'm so skeptical about healings. I'm so skeptical that actually God would ever heal someone. I've always seen it over there. And she, she said, that, I believe that you said we had to have faith and, and keep on going. And, and someone shared a story about that. And so she, she went home and didn't think about it. And then she emailed me because she said, I suddenly realized that I had, had, had had pain for five years in my life, in my back, and it was completely gone. No, it's an amazing story. She was 70 years old. She'd never seen anything like this before, right? And, and it happened because, because actually we were all a bit brave. We were all a bit scared. We were all a bit lost. We didn't know what we were doing, and we were brave enough to at least pray for each other, and God did a transformative work to, to transform our life. But I believe, actually, that God's plan for our, us as a community is not just that this would be a place of healing. I actually believe that what God wants for us is to call us out and by his power, and that actually he wants to do some things outside of this place. 
Yeah, and now I was a little bit scared when I suddenly thought the Lord say that. And I, you know why I thought the Lord say that? Was because whilst we were praying for that lady and other people, um, I actually got a text from one of my friends who said, Ben, we were supposed to be playing tennis this afternoon, but I've really hurt my back. I can't play. Now, this guy is not a Christian. He's never been to church in his life. Now, of course, what I knew that God was saying <laughs> in that moment was, okay, Ben, are you going to go and pray for him for healing? But because I'm such a holy pastor and I um, just lead by example in everything I do, do you know what I did when I saw him later in the day? Mate, I'm so sorry about your back. I'm so sorry. We'll be praying for you. See you later. Bye. <laughs> like, this is scary, right? I, I am a failure of this every single day. But I believe that, that what God wants for me and he wants for you is that we would just be prepared to take more and more steps into surrender and more and more steps into obedience. Because as we do, I believe we're going to see God do some transformative things. I want to hear more stories about people on the streets being healed. I want to hear more stories about God's supernatural provision in people's lives out there as well as in here. Jesus was mostly out there and not in here. I wonder what God this morning might be inviting you into. I wonder where you feel you are in your life. Are you here at the place where you don't even know if you want to surrender anything to the Lord? Are you here in a place of brokenness where you just feel like you've lost everything? Are you here where the Lord has invited you and called you into a place of encounter with him and relationship? Or are you beginning to experience what it looks like to hear his calling in your life? Because I want to pray this for every single one of us. Scary, hard, difficult as it feels, it is the very way that God gives us to life and life in all its fullness.